นโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะ
And the normal worldly way of thinking, the deluded ego's way of finding security, is to have a fixed position. And there's, uh, we all, I'm sure, familiar with that. Somebody asks us a question, and we don't really know the answer. We may tend to make something up. <laughs> oh yeah, like this. We we just love having an opinion about things. We know, like to know where we're at. We like to feel sure. And for most of us, many of us, it's, it's, we feel sure about the views that we have, the positions that we hold, the opinions that we cling to. And so much of our identity is established in that. Uh, and so Ajahn Chah is not aiming at that. He's not asking us to find the right opinion. He's inviting us to look at this whole thing of clinging to views that we do. So the idea that uh, we should just be meditating and we shouldn't be reading the scriptures, that's not what the Buddha is saying. Or the idea that we should just empty our minds out and and just have silence and peace, that's not what Ajahn Chah is saying. Rather, it's investigating to see where we're at with these things. So we need to get more subtle. It's not a matter of, of clinging to views. Ajahn Chah uh, used to talk about how it was living with right view. He said, if I didn't have right view, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. You know, all the expectations that he had to deal with, all the projections he had to deal with, all the challenges he had to deal with... Uh, his uh, explanation of how he copes with it is because coming from a place of right view. Which, what does that mean? What does it mean coming from a place from right view? In my first year as a monk living in Thailand, or maybe I was still a samaner at the time, I was living in Bangkok, and I was very preoccupied with all these opinions that I was hearing from the different teachers. Living in this monastery in Bangkok, Wat Bawan, and it's a place where a lot of Western monks tend to pass through and when they come to Bangkok to do their visas or do their dentist work. You hear all these different opinions about the right practice. Ajahn Mahabur, he teaches like that. Ajahn Phan, he teaches like that. Lumpur Kao, he teaches like that. Ajahn Tate, he teaches like that. Uh, all these different views and opinions about practice and and I was uh, aspiring to become a monk, and of course I wanted to live with the teacher, the right teacher, the one who gave the real teaching. And, and there were these monks passing through, I think it might have been Warapanya who was passing through, and I, I asked him, I said, what does Ajahn Chah say about right view? You know, I'd read the books, you know, right view is like this, like this, like this, and I'd heard all these views and opinions, and Anyway, this monk said, Ajahn Chah says right view means not attaching to any view or opinion. And that, for me, was a very different perspective. It wasn't ignoring, it wasn't dismissing the relevance of the view, the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, the teachings on, on rebirth, the teachings on karma. It wasn't ignoring these teachings, but it was emphasizing the way we relate to them. In fact, he went further and said, even the Buddha's teachings are wrong view if we cling to them. 
So it's the clinging that matters. So Maharajan Chah is talking here about uh, reading scriptures and having insight and freeing, liberating the heart from conceptual thinking. I think it's, uh, it's good to take on board that he's not just giving us a view to cling to. He's asking us to look at the, the positions that we have on practice. Yeah. We all have views and opinions, and that's another thing that, you know, Ajahn Chah is famous for talking about how particularly Westerners are so attached to their views and opinions. Somebody asked him, what's your biggest difficulty with your disciples? And he says, oh, all their views and opinions. He's quite surprised, I think, at arguing about views and opinions. It's a kind of a side effect of the kind of education we have. We're, we're not taught about letting go at school. We're taught about hanging on, about winning, about achieving, about being right. And, and that's got its place. But it's not necessarily wise because it doesn't, the evidence is that it doesn't take us to peace. If it was the real thing, if it was the answer, being right and winning, if that was the answer, then it would give us peace. Our lives would be peaceful, our hearts would be peaceful, our communities would be peaceful, our families would be peaceful, the world would be peaceful because everybody's into winning and being right. Um, so that's not a wise solution. It's not, it's not appropriate. So that's what the Dhamma is about. The Dhamma is about giving us a perspective on the effort that we make so that it does actually take us to peace. It does give us the experience of contentment and clarity. And so the proof, the proof of where we're at with our views and opinions whether it's about reading scriptures or sitting meditation or contemplation, thinking or going to silence, the proof of where we're at, whether it's appropriate, whether it's true, whether it accords with the middle way or not, is does it take us to contentment, clarity? Not just the contentment of numbing out. There's a certain sort of contentment of you know, if our lives are a bit fraught and a bit hectic, you know, you know numb out on a bit of samadhi for a while, you know, well, this is, this is the kind of contentment I'm looking for. Well, it may not, again, be uh, what the Buddha would refer to as samma samadhi or, or suitable samadhi. It can also be just numbing ourselves out. So, so whether it's suitable or not, you can see is it taking us to ease, contentment and clarity and understanding. And this is something that uh, we need to investigate in all of our activity, you know, whatever we're doing, we're all having views and opinions, preferences all the time. They're not wrong in themselves necessarily. They're not right necessarily. They may be wrong or they may be right, relatively speaking, but also are we finding our identity in my views, my opinions? Some of you were here yesterday for the uh, dedication of the new house, Mangala House, down the hill. It was a very beautiful event, something that uh, I had not expected to happen. Uh, just plod along, doing our best and feeling grateful for what we've got here. 
And then suddenly the whole thing expands in a very easeful, comfortable, beautiful, rewarding way. And so we marked it with this dedication, this celebration yesterday. And of course, uh, it takes a bit of organization. Hajan Go building this beautiful palanquin and then and then uh, the various people coming and threading garlands and and finding a, a gilder who can do gilding and and then of course carrying this substantial significant thing down the hill. You know, is somebody gonna drive their car up at just the wrong time or a dog gonna run out or is it gonna rain and all these things that could happen that one could become preoccupied with and I noticed on the day I noticed the tendency in my mind well we could do that better or pity that happened or why didn't we do that that's what we need to be looking at I mean it's just life I mean this is just life okay it's a fairly relatively speaking a fairly significant day for our monastery and as it happened it was a very joyous day but see what the mind can do with this yeah why is that person doing that? Why isn't that person doing this? And the mind can very easily. I mean, I'm sure I'm not talking to people who don't understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, we all know what it's like to have a com- compulsively, that's the word. It's not views and opinions or conceptual thinking that's the problem. It's when it becomes compulsive. And why does it become compulsive? Why does this activity become compulsive? The potential for speculating and extrapolating and comparing and assessing, well, that's, that's how we determine whether our lives, are, our actions are suitable or not. We, that's, that's, that's intelligence. That's obviously uh, important. So we don't want to get rid of that. But there's something goes on, some sort of a misalignment happens there at some stage in our growing up whereby we become identified as this activity. We we know that because we can't stop it. We get caught up in having views and opinions about everything. Having views and opinions about our having views and opinions. If only I could stop having so many views and opinions. Get caught up in this loop. So we study it. We study it. And that's why this wonderful gift we have from the Buddha, the refuge of the Buddha, a refuge of awareness itself, just knowing. The space of this room doesn't mind what passes through it. The space is not altered. Whatever passes through this room does not alter the space. The space is always there before and after, whatever passes through it. Awareness similarly just knows that we have awareness the jitta and the activity of the jitta. Mm-hmm. Our practice is to be able to see the difference between awareness and the content of awareness. Mm-hmm. There's the knowing and there's the known. There's activity of the mind, the views and opinions, preferences, prejudices. Yeah. Prejudices, I know, my mind's got all sorts of conditioned prejudices which... Hopefully I don't follow too often. The relief is when you can fall back into recognizing, oh, look at that, that's attachment to a preference 
becomes a prejudice. Preferences are natural. I'm sure, I've talked about this before, I'm sure if an arahant came here and we served him our power porridge for breakfast, he or she would eat it and be grateful. But, you know, if they came from the northeast of Thailand, they'd probably be looking for the fish sauce. That's just the body has got conditioned preferences. Now, if it's an arahant, then they're not going to get upset if there's no fish sauce. Preferences belong to the body. They're natural. When we don't see them for what they are, when we cling to them, we identify as them, then they become prejudices. Our views and opinions are just so. It's an aspect of intelligence. When we identify as them, when we cling to them, then they become compulsive. And then we become compulsively judgmental. And that's where the warp lies. So this is the kind of study uh, that we need to be doing. And understanding Ajahn Chah's teachings, it's not saying there's anything wrong with studying the scriptures. not saying there's anything wrong with conceptual thought. But the emphasis that he wanted to put on the teachings was that actually seeing the truth is the point. That doesn't mean to say that reading the scriptures is wrong. But if all we do is read the scriptures, well then maybe we're putting the emphasis in a place that doesn't bear the fruit that we're looking for. So as I was saying before, there is a context to what Ajahn Chah is saying there, that uh, as there was in the time of the Buddha, there in monasteries, there were monks and nuns who specialized in study, and then there were those that specialized in meditation. Some specialized in studying the suttas, some specialized in studying the rules, the vinaya. Others specialized in chanting. You get batteries of these monks or nuns sitting together reciting the discourses. They didn't write things down at the time of the Buddha, as you may well know, it was a about 500 years until after the Buddha died before they started writing things down. The thing that was really respectful, if you're really respectful of something, then you committed it to memory. And so there were monks, and even today in Burma, there are still monks who have committed to memory the entire Tripitaka. They have, uh, do they still have these competitions in, Manda, in, in Rangoon, Tina, where they get all these monks together to examine them to see if they can recite the suttas. And there's all these other monks sitting there checking them to see if they can do it. I think it takes them days to get through it. It's a phenomenal feat, but it is possible, apparently, if you train your mind to do it. And so there were monks or nuns who specialised in just reciting suttas. And sometimes these groups would become a little bit overly pleased with themselves and they would argue with each other and get a little puffed up and a little proud about we're doing the real thing and what's going on there attachment to views and opinions so even in the time of the Buddha this was happening it's a symptom of deluded egoity it's not a symptom of culture so the context In the time of the Buddha, the context in Thailand these days, there are monasteries that specialize in performing rituals for funerals and special occasions, and then there's monasteries that specialize in studying, and then there are the forest monasteries where they specialize, they put an emphasis on creating an atmosphere that conduces with quiet contemplation, with investigation, 
with the cultivation of insight. So I think it's important to understand this context that Ajahn Chah is saying what he said at that time when this quote was given, that um, he was saying that the emphasis in this monastery is to not just read suttas, not just have a conceptual understanding, but in fact to liberate the heart from all attachment to conceptual understanding. Not to say there's anything wrong with conceptual understanding, but to learn how to not cling to it. So it's to learn to see clearly. There are places, uh, those of you that have read Ajahn Chah's teachings, where you'll see that he talks in praise of conceptual thinking. There's a... Um, one of my favourite recorded teachings of Ajahn Chah, it's translated and printed in various books, it's called What is Contemplation? And it was a question and answer session that uh, was recorded and, and transcribed, translated, and it was a group of Western monks uh, sitting at Wat Gornork, which is a little monastery near where Ajahn Chah lived, and they were asking Ajahn Chah about, is this, you know, contemplation of this, is this the real practice? Uh, thinking about this, is this the real practice? Or is, is the real practice going to the original mind? What is the real practice? And Ajahn Chah was very patiently answering all their questions. And at one stage during this session, he says, in the beginning, well, kit yab which translates as, we use coarse thinking. But then later on, which means thinking in stillness. He said, in the beginning, we use conceptual thinking. That's what all this talk about Anicca Dukkha Anatta, Paticca Samapada, all this theory, all this pariyati uh, that we need to varying degrees, depending how your mind is wired. You, you need a certain amount of the theory of practice until the pathways for investigation have been established. Yeah. Just like if you've ever learned to do Tai Chi, in the beginning you've got to really make yourself work hard to lower your knees and center into the belly, and it's really difficult in the beginning, especially if you're a bit old when you first start doing it. You really feel gawky. Yeah. But if you keep doing it, you know, maybe, you know, after a few weeks, months, years, you know, maybe after five years, maybe it's just flowing and it's just happening. It's happening, you know. But in the beginning, it took a specific sort of an effort. Well, likewise with our investigations, we can't, we can't do the contemplations that our teachers can do because our, the pathways have not been established in the heart and the mind. So what we do in the beginning, we learn to train our thinking, we learn to think right, think straight. You know, pick up these themes for contemplation, like in the monastery, every morning reflecting on you know, the law of karma, reflecting on death, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on the requisites that we use. You know, why do we do this over and over again in the morning and the evening? You know, so as to establish the right pathways in our mind. It's not that this is the goal, just to keep reflecting on these things, but once we've done the reflection long enough, then there's an inclination for the attention to go in a certain direction. And that's what Ajahn Chah is talking about, contemplation in silence or in stillness. 
But in the beginning, it's, it's, you know, yes, we use conceptual thinking. But again, he would encourage us to use conceptual thinking, not be used by it. In our case, we tend to overuse it a little bit and it's difficult to stop the conceptual thinking. So we have all sorts of skillful techniques, visualising space around the movement of activity of the mind, listening to the sound of silence within which all this activity is taking place so as to slowly, gently, hopefully, effectively loosen this false identification we have with the activity of the mind. So all of these aspects of practice is the, the studying the scriptures, formal meditation, cultivation of an appreciation of silence. All of these have their place. It's having the patience, having the interest to find where and when and how to use these in our own practice. Everybody's different. The kind of distortions that people in Thailand have in their consciousness because of their cultural upbringing is very different from the kind of distortions that we have or the way the Chinese minds are distorted so they don't accord with reality or the Tibetans or the Sri Lankans. There are these cultural distortions of consciousness that come because of wrong thinking. But we have our own particular form of wrong thinking that in our culture we've been doing for a very long time with a lot of enthusiasm. And so then we come across Buddhism and we can get a little disappointed if we don't see all the progress that we would like to see. Well, indulging disappointment is, is really not called for. So long as we've got the interest in this possibility that the Buddha identified what he called the middle way. Yes, there is the alternative, there is the possibility, what he called the worldly way of attachment to fixed positions, attachment to views, attachment to experience. But then he realised and taught that there's also this other alternative of realising the possibility of abiding as awareness itself, which doesn't require any fixed position. You're probably... A lot of teachers, certainly in Ajahn Chah's case, he was criticised for being inconsistent. He didn't have to be consistent because he adapted to the conditions he was in. Likewise with the Buddha. The Buddha would give all sorts of teachings for depending on who he was meeting and what their particular distortion of consciousness was, what they were attached to. If somebody's attached to to anger and compulsive discriminating, what they need is to let go of discriminative intelligence and find an appreciation for unitive intelligence. Unitive intelligence, that's the characteristic of loving kindness that doesn't compulsively discriminate, that just receives. But then there are those that are really so so lost in unitive intelligence that they can't discriminate anything. They're just busy <laughs> enjoying life so much. They're just stuck on bliss. Well, a wise teacher meets somebody like that and they might give them some completely different theme on which to focus their attention on. So in our case, we need to stop and consider for ourselves what works. But fundamentally, behind our consideration, always, always it's the attachment 
that causes the problem. So with our views and opinions, we don't want to just pay attention to what views and opinions we're entertaining, but let's also take time and care to investigate our relationship to those views and opinions. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namah <laughs> Namah